0: Good evening. Good to see each one of you here this evening. We're so glad that you're here. My name's Tom, and we want to just welcome you this evening to our midweek Bible study as we're going to be jumping into John chapter 5 this evening. All of you that are joining us online, welcome. We're glad that you're with us as well. We're going to begin by just worshiping God for a little bit through song, and then we're going to jump in the Word. So I invite you to stand, and uh, we're going to sing about how that we are alive because Jesus is alive Mm -hmm we can live and we can enjoy life that he gives us
1: I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed You are the most beautiful. You are wonderful. You are wonderful. Oh God, there is no one more wonderful. You are wonderful. God, Amen.
0: We push the pause button to our week. We thank you that because you are alive, gives us hope, and causes us to be alive, and we can worship you and come into your presence and glorify your name. You are an overwhelming God. And you are continually working in our lives even when we don't notice it. And we want to thank you for all that you've done for us. For you are Lord of all the earth. And we love You. And we love to speak Your name in all the earth. sit down, you're even feel free to kneel however you need to worship God at this moment, just sing this to Him and make this your prayer so many
1: reasons too many to count to say that I love you to worship you not. Your love is perfect. Your love is kind. I know it's forever, forever in your mind Jesus the.
0: You call me beloved and
1: you call me friend.
2: your grace is my
1: bye you are always good. Where do I begin? There's so many reasons to love you. Your promise never breaks. Your beauty never Jesus, the anthem of my heart, Jesus, the anchor of my soul, I'm overwhelmed by all you are, oh how I love you. Because He lives Every fear is gone I know He holds my life My future in His hand Because He lives I can face tomorrow Because He the anchor of my soul. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by
0: our Savior, we sing those lyrics from the depths of our being, when we really, truly pause to think about it, your love for us, your mercy, your grace, your blessing, allowing us to wake up each morning, all of that is overwhelming, showing us how good you are, how gracious you are. And how you care for us. And we thank you that today you are alive. Because you are alive, we can stand here and sit here in your presence and worship you and give you all the honor and glory
2: and praise.
0: We love you this evening in Jesus' name.
2: Amen. If you would open up your Bibles to John chapter five. As we continue journeying through the Bible. I you know, think about we've been doing this for well over se- well seven years now and, and going through. We're in John. It's been a long time. I know I promised you that. Well, I don't know what I promised you. I said we'd finish the Bible in seven years. That ain't going to happen. Lord willing, though, we're going to finish before Jesus comes back. But if we don't, hey, guess what? You don't have to listen to me anymore. You can listen to him. As we pick up here in John chapter 5, we are taking a look at, at John laying out um, not necessarily a systematic set of, of documentation and accounts of all the things that Jesus did in his life, but, but rather he, what he's putting together, he's putting together sections to give people a reason why they should believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When we finished chapter 4 last week, we finished what was known as the Cana cycle, where he started in Cana and went down into Judea and then ended up back in Cana. Now John takes this next section that we're going to be taking a look at, and it's called the festival cycle, where John is going to be giving a narrative in this festival cycle of covering two Passover festivals a festival of tabernacles, and then also the Feast of Dedication, which is what we would call Hanukkah uh, in our day and and time. Within that, we're going to see some miracles. We're going to see some teachings and some pushback. In fact, tonight we're going to see something that is amazing. Jesus is going to show mercy tonight, and he gets nailed for it by the religious leaders. And one of the challenges is uh, against Jesus is that... Jesus cares more about people than religious ideology. What would you rather have in your life? Mercy or judgment? I would rather mercy. If you think about the fact that your very existence here is based on the mercy of God. You're here because God is merciful he didn't give you what you deserved, right? He gave us what we didn't deserve and that brings in the grace within that. The challenge is when Jesus did that, the religious ideologues, the religious leaders of the day didn't like it. Why? Because it wasn't the right thing to do in their religiosity within their their ideas especially as it deals with the sabbath day jewish culture the sabbath day is holy and you keep it holy to the letter one of the interesting things that in our we've been to israel multiple times and one of the first things and, and i'll never forget i got in the wrong elevator one time when you go to israel and uh, you know in the hotels they got all of these different rows of elevators and i think i was like on the ninth floor or something and we were getting ready to, to go down for dinner and It got in the elevator, and the wrong elevator means this. On Sabbath day, that elevator stops at every floor. Why? Because it's the Shabbat elevator. It's the Sabbath elevator. And they don't want you operating machinery on Sabbath. So if you didn't want to operate the machinery, you would get into that elevator and you would stop on every floor. I'm looking at the people getting in the elevator going, what in the world is going on here? pushing buttons, they're looking at me like, don't do that. (laughs) But you you, you think about this. Is there a time when our bias gets in the way of showing mercy? Absolutely it does. When our ideas. And so we're going to see tonight what's called the Sabbath day scandal. A time when Jesus shows grace over the law when he distributes grace and gives mercy within this. And it really raises this, what we would call a Christological um, challenge. Does Jesus have authority over the law? Or is Jesus bound by religious laws and tradition? Think about that. Does Jesus have authority over religious law and tradition, or is Jesus bound by religious law and tradition? It was a challenge for these people. So we're going to take a look at this. We're going to jump right into John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. And the healing at Bethsaida it says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now they're in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down in a certain season into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever diseases which were they afflicted in. And a man was there who had been ill for thirty-eight years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now, we'll pause there for a minute because that's where it really should break in the narrative. But what do we have here? Well, in the beginning, what we see is that the people were being challenged. They had lived in tradition and under law for so long that it had become rote. Have you ever asked somebody, why are you doing this? Say, the death nail, Why are you doing that? We've always done it that way. Well, does it make it right? Because you've always done it that way. Well, we've always done it that way. Well, it's a challenge. And I love the fact that Jesus came to challenge all of these traditions that man had created that had become ungodly. That they had taken things to an extreme. The words after these things really is John's narrative in in picking up after this cycle of the Canaan accounts. And he's connecting these these theological truths that Jesus is the Son of God. As the Son of God, does he have authority over the Sabbath? And that's the challenge. Yeah, we say, yeah, because we're on this side of everything. But for them, they don't know. They think, wow, the Sabbath is everything that's been given by God. And we'll unpack that a little bit. So we have this Feast of the Jews. We don't know the feast. John just says that there was a feast, this this. Feast that was going on there in Jerusalem. One of the clues that tells us when we read John's account, we know that John was writing from the standpoint of Jerusalem still being in place. We know that in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. And so he is talking about this particular time, giving reference to a place called the Sheep Gate or Bethsaida. And it, and it was the location of the healing. So Where is it? So if you're to take a look at the Temple Mount, it's in the northeast. And so for those of you that have been with us to Israel, I want you to think about St. Anne's, where we went and we sang. Do you remember that place? So outside of St. Anne's was the five porticos just to the left. And if I remember right, I think it was the Korean church that was there that just were blowing the doors off. It was amazing. At any rate, we know that uh, in... 1888 these five porticos were unearthed by archaeologists and what they were they were these five arches that had all of these pools that were all set in place in this this area and these five porches held all the sick the lame the blind and the crippled there was all kinds of different people that were suffering from all kinds of different diseases why because they believed a myth a legend that was there. Now, in our Bibles, you're going to see something in verse 3 and then to verse 4, something that is footnoted, which says it wasn't in the earliest translations, and it wasn't, but it was added by scholars later, and it's bracketed, saying it wasn't in the early manuscripts, but it's there to kind of give you some idea of what the mythological aspect was. So, in those bracketed, we wouldn't necessarily say that they were wholly inspired, but it does give us some historical insight that's with that. What was happening? Well, it was believed by myth that if you were to go into these places and you would hang out there in these pools when you were sick, you were lame, you were blind or whatever was going on, that that if an angel came and stirred the water, the first one into the water would be healed. Now, we don't have any documentation that that happened. It wasn't anything magical or anything that we know, but it was a myth. And you've got to wonder, how many people believe in myths? And why would you go to a place that isn't a guaranteed healing other than the fact that it was your last bit of hope? It's interesting that this place was full of sick people that were all abandoned by the rabbis and the teachers. It was the place where they were all kind of corralled, if you will. The place where all of these sick people were just left. And their only hope was a myth, a legend. If they could just get in the water, when the angel would... Can you imagine every day having to go to this place? And your only hope for change. And the rabbis stayed away from him because these people would be declared unclean. Question. Would Jesus often go to places... Where people resided that were outcasts from society? Did he connect with the lepers, the harlot, the, the outcasts? That was his ministry field. That's where he went. Why? Because they're the ones that had the deepest need. He went where the, the self-respecting rabbis wouldn't go. Why? Because they didn't want to get dirty. See, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And he came to give his life a ransom for many. And he went to these places. And so, you think about this gathering place. They were trusting in a myth more than they were trusting in Yahweh God. Because that was their only hope. You think about these mythological teachings and how they can take away from God. Think about myths that that are in our society today. Are there myths in our society today that draw people away from the truth of God's Word? Sure. We tell them to our kids twice a year. Myths and legends that undermine the truth of God's Word. And we have to be very, very careful. Because if you're telling your kids these myths and these legends that are untrue... When they grow old, and they say, well, if you lied about this, then are you lying about God? It's a challenge, and you have to think about your theology. We need to be very narrow about our truth and very gracious with with those that are working through this. But the difficulty is, especially in biblical times, where cultic behavior was paramount. It was, it was driving everything. In the Near Eastern culture, where they had myths and legends and, and Zeus and all of these guys, this is their ministry field. Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 3-4. He says, I urge upon you, my departure of Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men, note, not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculations rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Whenever we create something that is extra biblical, in other words, we're adding to the Bible, we're creating a myth or a legend. When you believe that myth and legend more than you can, more than you do the accuracy of God's word, you run into problems. In the same time, we, we have to be careful, and in, in later on in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, he warns them again, he says, For the time will come, note, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and turn aside to what? Myths. In other words, what will happen? There will come a day when people will walk away from the truth and they will only listen to the people that tell them what they want to hear because it's the myth they want to believe. Do we see that in our world today? Absolutely. And so when Jesus came, he came to bring the truth that you shouldn't believe in some magical water or angel or something like that Turn back to Yahweh God, who is standing right in front of you, the Son of God, and he's going to prove it. He's going to prove that he is the Son of God and that he has the power to heal greater than the water, the myths, or the legends. Notice this man in verses 5 through 9. This man that was there who had been ill for how long? 38 years. Is that a long time to have a chronic illness? 38 years. Imagine, you've been sick for 38 years, no telling how long this guy's been there. We know that he's crippled. And John is describing the focus of Jesus' ministry, which is mercy. Notice it says when Jesus saw him, he knew how long he'd been there. He saw him. And he knew that he'd been there for 38, he'd been sick for 38 years. Now that is divine knowledge and inspiration within that. But he asked him a question, and please be very careful when you're talking to sick, those that are chronically ill. You better be able to back up this question. Do you want to get well? Because you're probably going to get hit. Of course I want to get well. That's why I'm coming to this pool all the time. And we're not told how he got there, whether he stays there for long periods of time or not, but we know that he has been in this place, and this is his only hope. And Jesus, in the midst of this Basically a hospital with all these sick people. And he goes up to one guy and says, Do you want to get well? Yeah. big. You think so? I wouldn't be here if I didn't want to get well. Now it brings up a, a number of different thoughts in my mind. And it really is a challenge. Why did Jesus ask that? Because he wants to see this man's faith. And he is giving the first question to draw this man into understanding faith and where he can place his faith. Do you want to get well? The interesting thing about this is Jesus took the initiative to come to the man. Jesus took this man and gave him an opportunity to be healed. And... The implication is, do you want to get well? Because I have your answer. That's the implication in the the statement. Jesus is not being mean, but he's getting this guy focused. We think of somebody who has fallen into sin or somebody who is broken. Do you know broken people where their lives are destitute? Look at your life. Look at your life. Are you happy? Would you like to find peace? Because obviously you don't have it right now. And the person would respond, yes I do. That opens the door for that conversation. And it is to give this man this focus towards Jesus. Jesus is going to do something with one guy. In front of all these people the other thing that i I, i'm challenged by is okay jesus you came to heal why didn't you heal everybody think of how great that miracle would be right he's at the pool could he say to everybody at that pool blind lame or whatever all right y'all are healed and everybody wouldn't that be great would be great but that wasn't his purpose his purpose was to create witness and testimony that he has the power to heal amongst all of those that are watching and to do something that Isaiah prophesies. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 6 says this, Then the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for the waters will break forth in the wilderness and the streams, streams in Arabah. In other words, to give somebody the ability to stand and to walk and to bring about joy. You often wonder if Jesus came, why didn't he just heal everybody on the earth? Well, he did at the cross. Not the physical healing, but the spiritual healing. He conquered our greatest enemy, which is death, <laughs> eternal death. And that that he has given to us, these bodies will die. They're going to perish. But he needed to give hope. And he also needed to exhibit his authority. What's interesting is instead of answering Jesus saying, yes, I want to be healed, he gives an excuse. What was his excuse? He said, you want to be healed? He said, I don't have anybody to take me to the water. Interesting. Why didn't he just say yes? Because he's still stuck in the myth. He's still stuck in the ideology that being in the water is going to be what heals him. So he's wrestling with this. When you come to faith in Jesus, you will have to wrestle with what you believe. It will be a wrestling match. Where Jesus gives you this calling, do you want to be healed? And so many times we we fall back on what we know, but faith is not what we know. Faith is trusting in what we don't know, where we fall into the hands of Jesus. And so within this, the other thing that I think is interesting is this man still trusting in himself. I don't have anybody to take me over there, therefore my plan is not working out. He's trusting in his own plan. Don't trust in your own plan. You trust in the Lord. Absolutely, Chuck. We trust in the Lord. And so, what was he hoping? He was hoping that Jesus was going to say, here, let me help you to the water. But that's not what Jesus does. It's interesting. He was expecting one kind of healing from Jesus to help him into this water, but instead, Jesus gives him a command. What was the command? Get up, pick up your bed, and walk. Now that's, in Greek, it's an imperative. It's not like, you know, if you, if, if you really feel like. If today you want to identify as a man walking, or whatever the case may be. No. He said, get up, pick up your bed and go home. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's non-negotiable. The question was, do you want to be healed? And if you want to be healed, do what I tell you to do. It's pretty simple with this. Notice, the text tells us, the man immediately, by faith, obeyed him. He didn't say, you sure? The water's right there. No, he picked up. Now, the amazing thing, how long has this guy been sick? 38 years. Have you ever seen somebody that has had a knee replacement? Joint replacement? Injury? There's usually like physical therapy. You know, they they, they do the shuffle. They really can't do much. You don't believe me? Look around people sometimes around here in the church. You'll see them doing that. Just saying. This guy has got enough strength to jump up Grab his bed and start walking. The healing was immediate, permanent, and complete. Immediate, permanent, and complete. That is amazing when we think about it. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't debate the man over the reasons why he shouldn't believe in the water or the myth or the legend. He just gave him a command with this. And the man obeyed. Now here's where the challenge comes. In verses 9-14, through notice in the second part in, in 9b, it says, Now it was the Sabbath on that day. And so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured... It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Okay, we'll get back to that. But he answered him, and he said, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They said to him, Who is, it that, who is the man that said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while the crowd was in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him. And said, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin in the area. And he's carrying his pallet. Now, what do they focus in on? The healing or the breaking of the law? They're not amazed going, Joe's carrying his pallet. It, he's been at the pool forever. No, what do they say? It's Sabbath day. You're not supposed to carry your pallet. You're working on the Sabbath day. They totally missed the miracle. They had no clue. All they see is Joe carrying his pallet. But they were challenged. Now, were they right in obeying the law not to work on the Sabbath? The answer is absolutely yes, based on the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, which is the Jewish code of law, the, there is a question about work, and it describes 39 different kinds of work, including carrying something from one place to another. The exclusion was for the acts for compassion, like carrying a, paral- a, a paralytic. So it wasn't work to carry somebody that was paralyzed. You could do that. That was an act of compassion. Could you imagine having to learn all 39 laws on what you could and couldn't do? oh my goodness, it is worse than ODFW and their hunting and fishing regulations. (laughs) You've got to be a lawyer to figure that out. But you think about it. They knew it. And they would call him out on this. The healed man was guilty of violating not the law, but one of the 39 traditions that they created. The Mishnah was their interpretation of the law to create a tradition that was to regiment people. It was not Scripture. But it had a biblical basis in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 14. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you and throughout the generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies it, or literally sets it apart. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now, what did the law intend? That you don't work on the Sabbath? No, that you don't substitute and forget the Sabbath for the sake of work. In other words, the Sabbath day is to be set apart to be different than any other. People, you get six days. Give God one. Don't make it like every other day. Keep it separate. That was the intention of the law. Why? Because it's super easy to forget God. And so God said, once a week, we're going to spend some time together. Kind of like having a date night with your spouse. It's a good thing. But if you go a long time without a date night with your spouse, you're going to forget why you were married. And you end up being roommates. That's not good. So with this, Sabbath is this time that we spend with God. But the problem is human tradition started interpreting Sabbath and adding to it things that God never intended with it. In fact, Jesus would redefine Sabbath a bit more. In Mark chapter 2, verses 27-28, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of the Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was, was made for us. And Jesus is Lord over that Sabbath. Now question, if Jesus is Lord over Sabbath, can He determine what needs to be done on Sabbath? He's the boss. He's Lord over the Sabbath. But the problem is the Jews at this time, the religious leaders, didn't recognize Jesus as Lord over the Sabbath. Why did Jesus heal the man on the Sabbath? To prove that he is Lord over the Sabbath. To establish that truth. I think it's interesting that the man deflected the responsibility, though. They asked him, they said, so why are you carrying your pallet? He did it. He told me because he knew that he would get into a lot of trouble. And the religious leaders, they were challenging him. Jesus was the one that told him, yes, because he has authority. Now, the Jewish leaders turn their attention away from the man onto Jesus. Why? Because now we have information to call Jesus a Sabbath breaker. Now we have something against him. Because we don't like him. Have you ever been falsely accused by somebody's prejudice or bias for doing something kind or nice or they just didn't have enough information but they were looking for something to accuse you for? That was Jesus' life. His three years being accused for for kindness. Jewish leaders said, who is this man? Well, he says, I don't know. He slipped out. I love the fact that Jesus does stuff like that. You're healed. Bye. And he goes. Because it wasn't about drawing attention. He wasn't looking at picking fights. The audience that he was ministering to was everybody at the pool. That he would have that authority. Now, he comes to the guy a second time. Catches up with him and he gives him a warning. It's an interesting warning. And there's, there is some truth and theology in this. He says this in verse 14. After he found him in the temple... Why would the guy be in the temple? Because sick and lame and blind could never worship. They had to be kept out. His whole life, he was not able to go to temple and worship because he was lame. Was not allowed. So what was the first thing that he did? He went to go worship. And what did Jesus do? He went to the temple to see this guy. And he catches this guy in the temple and he says, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Hmm, interesting. Is all sickness based on sin? The answer is no. Is there some sickness based on sin? The answer is yes. Catch the divine knowledge. Jesus knew why the guy was made lame to begin with, and the implication is you sinned and it was divine judgment for what happened. We're not told what happened, we're not told, but this is this little private conversation Jesus is having with this guy. you imagine this guy going, oh, yes sir. And again, this, this revelation, that is there's this word of knowledge that, that Jesus has. Why? Because he is God. So he says, stop. This was based on judgment. And he gives to this man this opportunity for new life. This new life. And He takes away those sins. And in and, and 1 Peter 2.24 says, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. No, live to righteousness for by His wounds you were what? Healed. That is a promise. We are healed by the death of Jesus. Physically, yes, there is physical healing within that. Spiritually, Absolutely. Absolutely. Does God choose to heal some? Yes. Does God choose to heal everybody physically? The answer is no. Some people will not be healed physically. Does God choose to spiritually heal and give those that put their faith and trust in Him new life? The answer is what? Absolutely yes, 100% of the time. That's the healing. The problem is, Jesus' actions made the religious leaders mad. Notice in verses 15 to 18, it says this, And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well, so now he knows. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, and he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And he answered him, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus, not only are you making these guys mad, you're making them really mad. But does Jesus come to please people or take the easy road? And the answer is absolutely what? No. He came to bring truth. He he came to to reveal the father to mankind and notice that these religious leaders, they became very angry, not just because Jesus was a Sabbath breaker, but he was, would become a blasphemer to make yourself equal with God is a big deal. It's a big claim. You got to be able to back it up, but Jesus could, but the challenge in the embedded truth in verse 17 is if he is, the Son of the Father, and equal with God, does he have authority over the Sabbath? The answer is absolutely yes. And so, while they're mad because he violated the Sabbath, he says, I have authority over the Sabbath. Which they didn't want to accept. In Mark's account, in Mark 2.8, it says, So the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath as he explains it to them. And from this point on, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy them. Which sets up the next section, which really creates a spiritual paradox for these guys. They can't comprehend how Jesus is the Son of God and yet equal with God. Look at verses 19 to 30. It says, Therefore Jesus answering and saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son could do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. <clears throat> and the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has placed out, has been played, passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. For just... As the Father has life in Himself, even so, He gave life to His Son to have life in Him. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, or the hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now, one of the things that you have to start with is the Jewish foundation, it's called the Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and it goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, what? One. One of the challenges that we face as human beings is we cannot comprehend the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in what? One. What we create is a thing called modalism. Modalism is this idea that God functions in these different modes or these different sectors. God operates as the Father. God operates as the Son. God operates as the Spirit, and they are three separate. Well, yes, they are, but they're still God. Now, can I explain it? The answer is absolutely not. That is one of those things that you put in the in, in you know the memory bank, and you you say you know I need further information, and when I get to heaven, then I'm going to ask God to explain it. And when you get to heaven, it's not going to really matter anyways. But the reality is. If you can explain the Trinity, you're running in danger of heresy. If you explain it away, you run in the danger of a false faith. You can't explain it. This is one of those things that you accept by faith within this. God is not polytheistic. In other words, there are not three gods. I heard a guy, a TV evangelist one time say that there are nine gods in the Godhead. That, that there are three in God the Father, three in God the Son, three in God the Spirit. That's heresy. Here's what we know. God is one and Jesus is God. God is one and there is the Father. God is one, and there is the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Unique in nature, indivisible. Indivisible. As Jesus is explaining this to them, what He is explaining is His unique oneness with the Father. God is Spirit, and we cannot see Spirit. Spirit. Therefore, God presents himself in the Son, who is the clear representation of the Father in this. In Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. Look at the New Testament. Everything that we need to know, that God deems that we need to know, is found in Jesus He's equal with God, but he's not independent from God, but he is interdependent. We think independent, but he's interdependent with God. And because of that interdependency, there is a complete unity within the Father, within the Son, and within the Spirit. Because there is an interdependency that when they function, they always function as one although they may have different roles within that the father initiates he sends he commands he commissions and he grants the son responds obeys performs according to the father's will and represents according to the authority the spirit resides and connects the believer and is the bridge from mankind to god as as our intercessor in When you were born again, you have the Spirit within you. All functioning as one. Now, in the case here, they're really frustrated because here Jesus is exerting authority that should only be Yahweh God. But what he is saying in this text, all the way through this text, is that based off of this love relationship, he cannot not do the things that the Father deems for him to do. He doesn't walk. He doesn't work. Independent of the Father, but interdependent. The Father loves the Son without limitation. The Son loves the Father without hesitation. They work together. Father in heaven, Son on earth. And the effect of the revealing of the the Father through the Son to man is really the reflection for the church, for us. Do you realize how blessed you are? Old Testament saints longed to have the knowledge, the information, the understanding that the New Testament church has. They longed for that. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 9 says this. Talking with Philip. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you will know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father. And he said, it's enough for us, Jesus said to him. Have I seen, been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And we're, we're, we're interdependent. And it's that work. And the greater works that Jesus will show. Why? Because we can see them. Some of the greater works is the supreme authority. One of the greatest works is the fact that Jesus is going to destroy Satan. He's going to destroy him. That is a great, great work. Within that. And we love to be able to see that. When Jesus comes back and establishes His kingdom on earth, we're going to see Him come in His glory. And with the sword of His mouth, He's going to destroy the kings of this earth and the armies of the nations. And the blood will be as high as the bridles of horses in the valley of Armageddon. We're going to see that. That's going to be amazing. And we're going to be on the sidelines going, yeah, go get him Jesus has authority, notice in verse 21, to give life, just as the Father has authority to give life. In the Old Testament, the taking of life was a divine prerogative. Only God could give life. Only God was allowed to take life. In Deuteronomy 32, 39 says this, See now that I am He, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So the Jews said this, only God can give life, only God can take life. And Jesus says, no, there is life giving in me. And Jesus has that power and that authority. What does he give? He gives eternal life within this. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. And he gives it. He gives it as this gift. And He'd been given this authority to raise the dead. You think about widows of Nain. Her son, Lazarus. Do you hear what Jesus said? At My voice, the very tombs are going to open up. Now that's going to be cool. And we know that at His resurrection, it did. But you think about At His voice when He calls you home. When He calls you home. You're going to hear His voice. And He's going to say, "Gary, come home. I'm going to give you life. And I'm going to go, about time. I'm good. We look at this. Also in this, Jesus talks about the judgment. Not only is it the son's and the father's divine prerogative interdependently to give life. But it's also their job to judge. Everybody goes, I want to come to Jesus because he's going to love me. Yeah. But if you don't come to Jesus, he's going to judge you. We talk an awful lot about the love of Jesus, the love of Christ that saves and all these things. But there is a judgment coming. And it's a bad time. This judgment that takes place, he's going to stand at the throne. We, we got to understand there is this judgment coming in, and it'll be a just judgment in Genesis chapter 18, 25 it says, far be it from you to do such a thing, talking about the destruction when God will judge the earth. So he says, far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the, ju- shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer is absolutely yes. At the great white throne judgment at the end. There will be a separation from the righteous from the unrighteous. And judgment is coming. And they'll be cast out to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the amazing thing is everybody is going to be able to say, yes, this was the right decision. Because their name is e- they're either judged out of the Lamb's book of life because your name is written there, because you put your faith and trust in Jesus, or you're judged based on your works. And the fact, if you don't accept the Lord, you're judged already. You're already judged. You already have the death sentence. So we look at Jesus as he declares himself as the object of saving faith. Verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, Jesus and the Father, has eternal life. That's a present tense, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. When does eternal life begin? The moment you believe. The moment you believe, you have eternal life. You already have it. You've passed from death to life. You say, well, I'm. what if I die? That's your body. That's not you. That's your body. And you get rid of this thing that doesn't work for you anymore and you get a new one. But the you lives and life is always in that context of of being in the presence of god the son gives life to whom he pleases and whoever hears his word and it's said and so when we think about life it's crossing over from from death into life romans chapter 6 11 even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to christ you're already living question is how are you living So we go back. Does Jesus have the authority to heal on the Sabbath? The answer is what? Yes. Because he is God. He also has the authority to judge. And he has the authority to give life. He demonstrates that he has the authority to judge and to give life because he has authority over the Sabbath. And to heal. And the miracles prove that out. And Jesus goes on and gives this, this eschatological mission As being part of the Father's mission. Notice what he says in verse 25. He says, truly, truly. Whenever something's mentioned twice, should you pay attention? Yep. Truly, truly. Multiple times he says this. A time is coming and has come. In other words, pay attention. He's quoting out of Isaiah 55.3. He says, incline your ear and come to me and listen, that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. In other words, there's this everlasting covenant that Jesus states. When we have communion, do you remember what Jesus said when he had the cup? This cup represents the new covenant ratified by what? My blood. That's the everlasting covenant. You know what's so cool about that? It's an everlasting covenant. You say, well, what does that mean? That means it'll never be broken. That means... It's an everlasting covenant bound by who? By the blood of Jesus, not by what you do. That means my salvation is secure. And if you can't work your way in, you can't work your way out. It's this grace gift. It's an everlasting covenant that has never changed. Paul would write to the church in Rome, and it's a passage that we Romans 8, I am fully persuaded that neither death nor life, nor principalities or powers, nor things above, nor things below, that nothing will separate me from who? The love of God. Pound. That is so awesome. Why? Because you are given eternal life. And that eternal life is what? It's not a hard question. Eternal And we look at this, and he says, this is the life. But there will be some that will be dead. We think about all of this. Why does he do this? Do you realize that everything that that Jesus is doing with direction of the Father all sets up one thing? Worship. Worship. When you think about all that God has given to you, Your response is worship. Thank you. When we meditate on it, when we think about that. What is God wanting? Worship. Why? Because worship is the act of connecting our heart and our spirit with the heart and the spirit of God. When we come before Him, out of gratitude and out of praise. It's where we connect with God. And Jesus will give that life. John 1.4 says this, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Notice the dative. In Him. You say, in Him is life. So when you become a Christ follower, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are not separate, but you are placed in Christ. When you are baptized, you are baptized in Christ. How do I live? I live because I am in Christ. Because He lives eternally, died, was buried, rose again. God sees me as in Christ. Which is huge. When you stand before the throne of God right now, God sees you in Christ. Perfect and complete and holy. That's why you have light. That's why you have life. Because you've been brought into that love relationship between the Father and the Son. Within that. Jesus does have authority to judge the living and the dead. We shouldn't be amazed by it. Why? Because He's God. we got to understand that from that standpoint, and, and as He says, there, there's basically in verse 29, there's these, these groupings that are in here. He's come forth those who did deeds under resurrection life and those who Committed evil deeds. There's these two classes of people. Well, how do I know what class I'm in? Well, what does your life look like? You're either doing deeds of righteousness that reflect the fact that you're in Christ. Or you're doing deeds of unrighteousness that reflect the fact that you are in the world. Your life is going to reflect... What would be a fancy word, the locative, or or where you are located spiritually, your lifestyle. In 1 John 3.18, John would write, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but deed or truth. James would say, you have faith without works. Show me your faith by your what? Works. Your life needs to demonstrate within that. But keep in mind, as verse 30, that the Son is is that that faith giver and that that object of faith, the one that we trust in, not a pool of water. It's the it's the sun that we trust in, and he gives us that witness. Notice in verses 31, 32, he says, "If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another one who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives." of me is true. One of the the actions that's within this is Jesus is going to prove his his witness if it was in a court and he says the first thing you got to do if you're going to court, you're going to bring what? witnesses to testify. Jewish law required two to three witnesses that's within this and Jesus starts out and he says my testimony is legal. Why? Because I'm not saying it about myself. Others are saying it about me within this. If I testify about myself alone, it's not true. So therefore, I cannot just say I am the son of God. There's got to be other witnesses. So what are the other witnesses? Well, again, he's looking for two or three witnesses. According to Deuteronomy 17:6, says on the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death with just one witness. So the law requires two or three witnesses. So Jesus says, I'm not a liar. Here's the witnesses that are there and the, and the testify now some would say well he's testified of himself but he didn't in this case he's testifying and he's looking at the different witnesses one of the things that he does in the witnesses is the first witness of John notice what he says in verses 33 to 35 you have sent John you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth but the testimony which i received is not from man but i say these things which you may be saved he was the lamp that was burning and was shining And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. In other words, the first witness is John the Baptist. Remember his testimony? When Jesus was coming to get baptized, he said what? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And you believed him. John the Baptist testified of Jesus. And the Father had sent John to testify of Jesus within this. What's the second witness? Notice verse 36. The witness of works. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father gives me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, the things I do. Okay. First witness, John the Baptist. Second witness, the works. Who has ever done the things that I have done? Now, according to Jewish law, They would have to do these works in accordance to prophecy. One of the things that all Jews were looking for in the Messiah is one who would give sight to the blind. No one had done that up until that point. And Jesus did on multiple occasions. His works would demonstrate that. In John 10.25, Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. Why did Jesus do miracles? to testify, to set up a witness. That's why he didn't heal everybody. He was just establishing a pattern of witnessing within that. And so these divine works are things that the Father would tell him to do. In Matthew 27, 54, the centurion would look at his old life, standing at the foot of the cross, and say, the centurion who was with the keeping over Jesus said, it saw the earthquake, and the things happening became very frightened and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Who's the third witness? The Father Himself. Notice in verses 37-38. And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time or seen any form. You have not heard His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him. In other words, at Jesus' baptism, didn't the Father testify? What did He say? This is my what? Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And it was witnessed. Witnessed. Both in Mark chapter 1, verses 10-11. through Where we see this. And then after the resurrection, we have this internal witness. Notice that he says, there will be an internal witness, but you won't get it. Why? Because you're not believing. But in 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, says this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So which one's greater? Testimony of men, testimony of God. Obviously God. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning the Son. The one who believes in the Son has the testimony where? In, dated, or uh, locative, in himself. The one who does not believe has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God gave him concerning. It is impossible for unbelievers to believe in God because they don't have the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray. God, fill me with your spirit so that I might believe. And it's this action of faith that's in this. Okay, so we got three testimonies. That should be enough, right? Nope, there's more. 39 to 40, the testimony of Scripture. It says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive the glory of men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. We look at this This passage and, and basically he's challenging him and he says, you think that you know it all? You don't. The Bible, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures testify about Jesus the Messiah. You think you're saved by obeying the law? Doesn't. One of the things that we've got to understand is this. Bible study does not save you. Jesus saves you. Bible study informs you that leads you to the knowledge of God unto salvation. Going to church is not going to save you. Just like going to In-N-Out is not going to make you a double-double. But studying God's Word is going to lead you to salvation because you learn about the love of God and you learn about these aspects that God has for us. We have to be careful that we don't worship the Bible as an object of faith. Paul would write this in Galatians 3:21, it is the law is then the law contrary to the promise of God may it never be, for if the law had been given by which was able to impart life then the righteous would have indeed been based on the law. Here is the problem. The Pharisees and religious leaders were worshiping the law and they say, we are worshiping the law, therefore the Sabbath is holy and you broke it and therefore you cannot be God. And so Jesus has systematically been going through and saying, no, I am. For all of these reasons, here is my power demonstrated. Here is my authority explained. And the Scriptures and the witnesses that I've given to you, John the Baptist, my Father in Heaven, my works and the Word. So you need to open your eyes and see. See what is before you. We think about how the scriptures would reveal God. So what does he end up with? The conclusion. Verses uh, 43 on, he says, I have come in my Father's name that you do not receive me. If another one comes in my own name, you would receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accused you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe? Jesus brings it back full circle. Moses wrote what? The law. And he wrote the whole Pentateuch. And he gave to them everything that points towards Jesus. And he says, look it. You don't believe me for my words. Fine. Fine. Moses is going to judge you. What is being judged by Moses? It's the law. You want to be judged by the law? Okay. Then that's what you're going to be judged by. But you're going to realize very quickly that you have a misplaced faith. Moses was esteemed very highly. And for Jesus to declare Moses to be their judge would have been the cap on this trial. Moses wrote about the Sabbath, and Moses wrote about me. You want to go there? Fine. But when it happens, you're going to be sadly, sadly mistaken. I want to encourage you to think about what we put our trust in myths, legends, systems, or the Word of God. Are you trusting in Jesus? It all starts there. Let's pray. God, I thank You. I thank You for taking us through these passages. Lord, I know that there is so much embedded in here. We could spend weeks unpacking all of this. But help us to understand, Lord Jesus, that that You are Lord of all. I thank You that we can surrender our hearts to You and our lives to You because You're the one that gives life. I would pray if there's anyone here that hasn't done that, that they would not trust in myth or legend or or even their own religiosity. But they would just surrender their life to you. God, we thank you for our time. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be honored by our lives in everything that we say and do. And may we lift the name of Jesus high above all. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So us all stand and we'll close with a song.